When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins, and I've spoken about this before, but I really think I learned how to write and direct when I learned how to edit. This week, we speak to two editors of two Tribeca documentaries, and we'll dig into why it's so critical to the filmmaking and storytelling process. See, when I was getting started as a filmmaker, I was lucky that my first short was pretty good. But when I went on to make my second, I was a little too confident in my ability to write and direct when I was really just going through the motions of writing and directing without understanding how to craft story or script for screen. So I shot a short, I raised money, I convinced my friends to spend a week with me shooting in upstate New York. It was all fun and games until cut to me six months later, watching cut after cut and not loving, not even liking what I had made. Luckily, in the shoot, I had decided to, on a whim, cast a dog to be in the background. And that allowed me to take back all the footage and reverse engineer a completely different story for my film. What was a short about a couple that goes upstate and breaks up, sort of like the anti-meat cute, became a five-minute tight little short about a dog that's been adopted but thinks he's been kidnapped, sort of taken meets homeward bound. And being able to find the story in the edit, which took the better part of a year thanks to the pandemic, I didn't have much else going on, and a lot of guidance from my editor, director, mentor friends, led to a happy ending for me. Festivals, etc. You can watch the short on my website. But how do you figure out a story in the edit when your story has no script at all? This week, we speak to these two Tribeca doc editors, Kelly Kendrick, the editor of Everybody, Everybody, Two Words, and Jamie Boyle, the editor of Breaking the News, about how they were able to craft the stories of their respective documentaries. Both of these films just premiered at Tribeca, and we're getting the freshest perspectives we could probably get because they just finished these films. In our conversation, we cover everything from crafting interweaving narratives of many characters to balancing tone to their favorite tools to use within their editing suite. Both films are receiving critical praise for their ability to unpack timely and difficult stories while maintaining a hopeful perspective. Now, you may not have a chance to watch these before listening, so I'll give you a little bit of an overview. They also talk about it in the interview. Breaking the News follows journalist Emily Ramshaw and her team of writers and editors as they create the 19th, the first nonprofit, nonpartisan news agency in the United States. Its mission is to focus on the impact of national politics and policy on women. However, by the time Emily and co-founder Amanda Zamora had secured funding and officially launched the 19th news site, they hit the pandemic. And the very fabric of society went into a tailspin. 
Breaking the news immerses its audience in the lives and steadfast pursuits of the members of the 19th, women and LGBTQ plus journalists, as they struggle to launch the agency and work to gain traction for their newsroom amidst shuttered news outlets and an upended America. With spirited storytelling, the directorial trio, Heather Courtney, Princess A. Hairston and Chelsea Hernandez provide an inquisitive and dynamic view into the inner workings of this news agency as its journalists disrupt entrenched biases and push for accountability. The second documentary we'll be examining is Everybody. In a country obsessed with gender, intersex people are often erased. And this documentary follows three intersex people recounting their individual experiences with stigma, social pressure, and non-consensual surgeries performed on them as minors. These three make the case for the much-needed rethinking of both archaic medical practices and binary ideas of gender and sex. The film is directed by Oscar-nominated and Emmy-winning filmmaker Julie Cohen. You may know her from RGB. She and her team allow the documentary participants to guide this intimate narrative and portrait of the life in between and outside of binaries and create something that's very unique in the process. Combining personal testimony with archival footage, the film directly engages with our country's transphobic history and exposes how little has evolved in the way intersex people are viewed and treated by medical professionals and society at large. However, as these three incredible individuals show in their fearless film, a better future is not only possible, but near. And now my interview with Kelly and Jamie. Thank you, Kelly Kendrick and Jamie Boyle for joining us on the No Film School podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Now, you both just had your Tribeca premieres. We're, we're days out of the festival. How are you feeling post, post-premiere? Uh, <laughs> I'm feeling really good. It was really fun. That's actually the first time I've had anything in the Tribeca Film Festival. So I don't think it could have gone better, really. You know, it was a packed house. Everyone was crying and laughing and cheering. And it was great. It was a really nice time. Yeah, same. I had a similar experience. It was my first time in a key role with a film at Tribeca. So that was wonderful, packed premiere and everybody at the festival was great. And I got to meet actually a lot of the film team for the first time in person and the participants for the first time. So yeah, just a wonderful experience all around. It's it's funny how festivals actually bring teams together that may not have met. When we were at Sundance, we were doing a director of photography roundtable followed by an editor, sound designer, post-production roundtable. And the two meetings converged. And a lot of people were like, hey, I know you really well because I've been editing your your footage for the last year. And now we're meeting in person for the first time. So that's part of the festival magic, isn't it? That was my experience too. I had just I met the crew for the first time in person also. Yeah, especially I think our edit periods were probably similar, Kelly and I. So it was, you know, just tail end of the pandemic, too. And like a lot of people weren't you know, traveling yet. And if you can stay remote, probably better. So, yeah, that was the, a great part of it. I find that a lot of jobs, too, are more you have crews from that are scattered a lot more than it was before the pandemic. So almost every job you're working with people that are really all over the world, which is so the festival is nice. <laughs> now, would you both actually will take a step back and talk about the specific documentaries that you worked on and what it's about and how you became involved in the project? Well, so I edited the film Everybody. It's about three intersex people, and it's basically ter- telling the story of their lives and kind of how they've been mistreated by the medical community they see. And it's kind of a lot of the story is also tied back to a story from a guy named David Reimer and it's kind of telling their story and how an old story is is still repeated in their lives today so and i you know Julie Cohen the director just wrote me kind of out of the blue and i just met her for coffee and we just talked about the story 
for a long time and I didn't know much and I learned a lot before. I mean, we talked about the film maybe a year before I even started editing it. So I had a lot of time to sort of research and read and yeah. And I, I signed on to the project right away. Really. I just was like, so interested and amazed that she was trying to tell it. Cause I because really it's a story that I don't think most people know. I mean, I, every single person I've talked to and tried to explain it to, they don't know anything about, about this. So yeah, I thought that was the most interesting thing. That's like, it's very hard to tell a story. No one knows now, you know, nothing about it. So Absolutely. How about you, Jamie? Yeah. So I wrote and edited a film called Breaking the News. It is about the 19th news for those who know it. It was a startup nonprofit newsroom started during the pandemic from the woman who started the Texas Tribune. And she brought together a phenomenal group of talented reporters from major publications who were really disillusioned with their jobs and with the U.S. news industry in general and wanted to start something different. And what started as an all-women-led, the first all-women-led newsroom in the U.S. became all-women and non-binary people-led newsroom in the U.S. covering all aspects of gender, I think politics and policy. I can't remember their exact mission, but they are a really incredible group. And it it became about their first year and their evolution. So one of their reporters was the first to break the Breonna Taylor story. And they went on to just do some really incredible reporting that first year. That same reporter was the got the first interview with Kamala Harris when she joined the Biden ticket. And they really just really exploded and people so appreciated what they were doing. And the film really became about their evolution and the the bias that they even came to the table with and how they were going to kind of meet the moment and evolve. And, you know, I think one of the things I appreciate most was their willingness to, to show that evolution and to show those stumbles along the way. And especially the leaders, because I know that wasn't easy, but people are, it's being received so well and people are so grateful that they were willing to show that because I think it's so important in this moment in time to, you know, be honest about, you know, the hiccups that, that people have and the, and the, you know, learned bias that we all have and how we get past that and find a way forward. So yeah, they're doing some pretty incredible work. They're now on year three. And I came to the project about a year ago in March, 2022. I have the years right. Yeah. And Diane Kwan, the producer, she produced Bad Axe and she's most well known for Minding the Gap. She came to me and I'm the biggest fan of Minding the Gap. I think it's just incredible. So I was very excited when she came to me about this project. It had three different directors in three different time zones. So there was, I was a little bit worried about the time, the time period we had to edit this in. We have five main participants and all different storylines within those five. So yeah, it was it was a big one to take on, but I was excited about every every part of it. I was just I was a little worried about the timeline, but you know, that's a doc edit for you. So <laughs> you know, the team was really great. They also all of them edit too. So they were really gracious and understanding that, you know, respecting that space and understanding how long it actually does take. And so, yeah, we forged ahead together. And yeah, there was no question in my mind I was going to take it if they would have me because it was, it was, yeah, a phenomenal opportunity. It's, it, I actually feel like the both of these documentaries, they go hand in hand and they're very of the current moment, sort of dissecting how we're processing and becoming more and more disillusioned with whether it's the newsroom or the medical system. And and you do speak about, Kelly, you mentioned telling a story that no one knows. And Jamie, Breaking the News tells a story behind a, the stories that have been very of the moment as well. And both documentaries also follow multiple characters or people. I know in podcasting, even when it is nonfiction, we call them characters. So can you talk to me about how you approached the story and how you figured out how to tell this multi-character piece for your respective documentaries? Yeah, well, it was really important to us that we sort of told each individual story, but then also how each of them relate to each other and like the commonalities between each of the people. 
and also how they're affected by the past. And so in our case, it was kind of like, how do you tell this information while interweaving an old story that still affects the medical establishment or medical side of like intersex people and what they deal with every day. So, you know, if you see the film, one of the big stories is Dr. Money is this old doctor from the fifties who a lot of medical literature uses kind of a failed medical experiment to give surgeries to intersex people when they're really, really young. And so a lot of intersex people feel that that that's a surgery that, you know, they didn't choose. They were never able to choose because it was given to them. So we kind of started threading his, you know, old news clips and medical things through the entire thing and how it relates specifically to each character. And, you know, Julie also, Julie kind of really early made it clear that it wanted, she wanted the film to be really joyous and happy and like a celebration. And I think it really comes off like that. You know, there's a really dark second act to the film, but in the end, it's kind of, you know, it's really happy. It's a very nice yeah, ending. Yeah, it's absolutely. really fun. And we kind of wanted that to be the vibe for the movie the whole time. So. Yeah, my it was actually similar in the in determining what to lift up and how to navigate that narrative arc. They all five definitely had very, you know, singular experiences that that didn't relate on their face, but so many of them were struggling with such similar issues. So, you know, for instance, when Kate, the non-binary person is struggling with some internal dilemmas and bias and blind spots, Aaron, we tied that with Aaron Haynes reporting on Amy Cooper in Central Park and her, you know, as Aaron says, using white tears to potentially cause harm to this black bird watcher. And you started to see, like, I think one of the opportunities that presented itself that was also a challenge, but the ways in which these like seemingly disparate experiences could be commenting on each other. Um, and so when they were back to back, it didn't feel like you were jumping around because Kate was talking about Aaron's experience and Aaron was talking about Kate's and their reporting and their work was so wrapped up in their own experiences. So finding those and then, you know, and where those tied together was huge. And then there are overlaps in their reporting too. And, and the themes, obviously. So that was what we looked for. I also, they have all been doing media hits. I mean, basically all day, every day since 2020. And, and they recorded every Zoom call, every internal Zoom call. So there was all of the original footage. And then there was probably 500 hours of Zoom calls wow. and an endless archival. And so one of the things, just to get into the nitty gritty, if it's helpful for editors, but I basically realized early on, and I, I love to watch everything most editors do, but like, that wasn't going to be possible. And it was a very hard pill to swallow. But, you know, I leaned on our AE a lot, mm -hmm. Ana Ramirez, and she was phenomenal. And, and we basically had to just make the decision to really pinpoint the things we needed to focus on. And so, you know, we relied on transcribing and all those, you know, fun tools to figure out what we needed, what I needed to watch. And I watched as much as absolutely possible. I mean, I think I watched and pulled selects for like two months straight and just packed in those days as much as I could. Because it really, I really needed to see like how these internal dynamics developed and how that affected their work. And so then that was the other thing. I, I basically decided to focus heavily on 2020 because I felt like as much as this was about challenging the white male status quo of the newsroom, it was also about like how hard to challenge it that is and how it falls on the people most marginalized and to be honest about that. And that was like never more obvious than it was in 2020 when they were just finding their footing. And so then that allowed us in Act 3 to really celebrate their wins and feel like they were so hard-earned and, and not feel like it was this, you know, puff piece that made it all, you know, seem like, you know, a cakewalk right. or, you know, something really unrelatable. And, and, and that way we, we could find a lot of joy too. And yeah, so we were, so then in 2020, I really tried to find the events, obviously the major news events that we all know and could give a back mm -hmm. behind the scenes look if that was possible, or if it was something that really shaped that reporter or shaped the newsroom, you know, the summer of racial reckoning started with, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. So the fact that we could interweave that was huge 
And, and it all started to kind of talk to each other after that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm I'm curious to hear how crafting the how you approached crafting the tone. You know, in breaking the news, you were exploring a very dark time in the recent past. In some, in everybody, you were exploring this very dark time in the past that has continued to thread through these people's lives. Were there passes where you realized with the team that we're going way too far in one direction or we need to push it further? And how did you balance that with the director director teams? Mm. Well, you know, as I said, Julie, she kind of wanted this to be a joyous film from the beginning. So we actually started editing with no music whatsoever, just no score. And we were just figuring out how do we... Why was, why was that? Well, because we didn't want to like try to tell people how to feel about their stories, you know, and especially mm. when they're talking about medical things, like in really, really personal medical things that they've gone through in their lives, and just the embarrassment of going to high school and being a teenager and dealing with all this stuff. And, you know, we dug up medical records and have one of Saifa goes through his medical records and we, we show where the doctor had marked ambiguous and then changed it to female and then that kind of started the uh, whole ball rolling of being, you know, identified as female his, you know, most of his life. So a lot of those things, we just didn't want to make, have a tone, you know, to, to the film at first. And so we, Julie, even before I started, knew that she wanted to use gender flipped covers for music. So it would be, you know, like a woman covering Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen or, you know, that sort of thing through the whole thing. So we had some of, we had, a huge bin of music that we were experimenting with for the fun sections. And then for the darker sections, just no music for a long time. And then eventually we brought on Amanda Yamate to do a score and it was just very minimal. You know, a lot of times yeah. when they're talking to us specifically about medical stuff, it's, there's just no music. So it's more just, you're kind of, you just sit and listen to their story and that's it. And then when it's time to celebrate, we do. Yeah, that's so interesting. Now I'm wrapped up in wanting to see that film. Um, but yeah, no, we, you know, similar challenge, like you said. And I think we're all hearing in the film industry that people are really responding to joy and to uplifting stuff and have had, you know, really had enough. I'm totally unrelated releasing another film this week that is not as joyous. And, you know, we've heard that a lot. So it was, and you know, I think the biggest challenge is you don't want it to feel like, I mean, exactly what Kelly was saying. You don't want it to feel like forced joy either, mm-hmm. just because, you know, that's, you know, what, what we're hearing and, and disingenuous in any way. And especially when you're covering such serious, you know, really gut wrenching times for people or story points. So it is such a challenge, but you know, you also want to be giving people hope, it, you know, if it's there. So it was a constant, constant back and forth on this film of what was swaying in the realm of just like too celebratory and promotional and feeling like, yeah, just a thinness or a disingenuousness or not really doing their experiences justice while also not letting it get so heavy that you felt like, you know, weighed down or hopeless, I guess. So the thing that actually helped the most, well, there were a few things that helped the most with this film, but the fact that we could toggle between characters or participants or however you want to refer to the main people in the film, the fact that we could toggle between, we could really balance those moments. So you could leave somebody's, you know, heavy moment and enter someone's moment of joy without it feeling, you know, jarring or anything because you're, you're going into their world now. The other thing that honestly really helped was the dogs in this film. A lot of it did take place during the pandemic and all of the participants have these dogs that are there are constant companions and they are always doing hilarious things. And it's always while they're working. So, you know, they provided this like levity and, and joy without it feeling, 
you know, odd because they're still in the room with them. And that was really, like, we thank the dogs of the 19th and the credits because it did go a long way and just like lifting people and reminding them that just like every day is also happening. And, you know, you're not just in these moments or we would use, you know, their partners or their spouses or their mom who's like, I've made sure to leave like tail ends of conversations where Aaron has just posted this piece on waiting four hours in Philadelphia to vote, even though she had applied for an absentee ballot, didn't come. This only happens in predominantly black areas. And she's talking to her mom who, you know, fought for the right to vote, never missed an election. And, you know, at the tail end of that call, she tells her that, you know, her, her present for Ginger, her Chris, Ginger's Christmas present is on its way and is in the mail. And that's, you know, Aaron's dog. And there were just these little moments that like we, I always made sure we kept in there that like reminded you of everyday life and the love and the joy that, that is also surrounding them in these moments. So yeah, that all those little things can go a, a very long way. Those human and canine moments that, that keep it real. And <laughs> it, interestingly enough, Kelly, you're, you also kept scenes but they were much more integrated into the narratives of the main characters' relationships with mothers, for example. And I think you balanced the subject of the film, which was accepting or learning how to support their children, their intersex children, for example. But you also kept these very human moments. Can you speak to one of those moments that you knew you needed to keep in to 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 create that balance? Sure. Yeah. Well, there's a we did this kind of happened organically where I, I maybe cut a scene that was way too long with river and their mom, because I just thought it was like the most precious thing ever. And they're just looking at family photos and just seeing someone grow up before your eyes with their mother. <laughs> and and yeah. she just clearly loves river so much. It's like the sweetest thing and river is translating for her in the scene. So it's, I don't know. The first pass was maybe 20 minutes or something. Julie maybe was like, I don't know. Maybe we, cut it down a little bit and, okay, fine. but yeah i mean it's like it's very important in our film because it's you know a lot of the mothers of you know the three main characters in the film are they have to kind of deal with making a decision very early on that they meant as i'm doing everything i can to protect my child and so now in retrospect everyone has to realize that like maybe those things weren't the best things for them you know, so it's like really important to show that it was all done out of love. And there are these really tender, beautiful moments, moments between them and their mothers. And so we kind of built a mother section in the film where you can just see like, you know, based on everything that the medical profession tells them as they're going with their children, all, you know, doing all these things, all the surgeries, all the hormone treatments, everything that they love them and they're doing it out of love and they're just, and you know, often they're misguided. One of the elements of breaking the news that I thought was powerful was showing the pushes back against Kate, who was calling for using gender inclusive language. She was pushing back against, you know, all these things that people were addressing, but she was also trying to keep things afloat. And I thought that was such a important part to show, you know, somebody who's going in with the best intentions, still making mistakes. What, what was she at all involved? I assume that she was completely hands off in the edit. And what were those conversations about striking a balance to show somebody with great intentions, but also not necessarily making the right choice? Yeah, a hundred, a hundred percent. You hit the nail on the head. Emily was our most complicated character and had the hardest time and, and, and dedicated the most time to getting that balance right. She was completely hands off. They did see a rough cut. The whole 19th team, everybody who was involved saw a rough, not a rough cut, actually, I should say more like a fine cut about. And we actually ended up extending the edit for another month after that. I think we had one month left when they saw it. And then we extended it another month. And we weren't obligated to take any of their feedback. But they all had mm, sometimes similar, sometimes conflicting notes. Mm -hmm. And so it was similar to just getting notes from directors. You just kind of take what perspective you're getting and try to 
you know, contextualize it and then figure out if it's the best thing for the film or the truth or, you know, but so that would, that was their only input uh, along the way. And, and yeah, I mean, crafting Emily was so tough because you want to show that she does have good intentions and she, what she kind of, for me, what I realized was she was this perfect example of like, what happens when you are up against things like, you know, speed and investors and this nonpartisan lens. And, you know, she's trying to keep everything really kind of sent, not centrist, but, but nonpartisan. And this was before they became independent and took on that label. She was this perfect example of like everything she was trying to fight against. And it was like, she wanted to fight against it, but she didn't quite know how. So we could you know, for lack of a better word, use her to show how this comes about so easily in newsroom after newsroom after newsroom. And this is something that's, this is nonprofit, but she still has investors, you know, and she still has people she has to answer to. And, and she still has obviously inherent, you know, biases that are, as she says in the film, the results of the community she was raised in, the color of her skin, the, her position in life, her socioeconomic status. And, And she says, you know, I realized in some ways those were detriments to the work I was trying to do. So, I mean, like her honesty and going, I I just, I don't know many people that would be willing to show that, that kind of evolution when they're trying to stand for all the right things. And, and there's a lot of learning curves. And also we had to, to show the, the toll that that did take on the people pushing for change. So it was like balancing doing justice to that toll while also, you know, and, and also not creating this narrative where it's about Emily's learning, you know, and these people aren't just here to serve Emily's learning. So it was just, it was, I'm like rubbing my temples because it was a constant balance of how we strike that. And it was literally going line by line and scene. So, you know, for example, you talk about the 20 minute cut of the mother's section and, or that one scene with River Kelly. And I had a, and the Amy Cooper call, as we call it, after, you know, em- Emily didn't understand that this was this was specifically a white female problem. She didn't understand that there was a gender lens to it. And I think a lot of us white women didn't at that moment in time because, you know, we don't know our history. And so Aaron Haynes has to explain it to her. And, you know, that call needed to, I mean, it's still a Zoom call. And so you need it to be pretty quick. <laughs> but we actually ended up keeping it quite long, very long for a Zoom call because we kept in, there's almost no cuts. We kept in like Emily's actual reactions and it got longer and longer the more, the longer the edit went. So we had a cut where it went really quick and and Emily looked very bad and that really wasn't fair or how it went. So then, you know, we lengthened it out because her response was, it was more complicated. Her response was more generous. And, you know, so it was constantly stuff like that. And, and I have to say like having three directors at that time and a producer all weighing and creatively was like the best thing you could hope for because everybody's checking each other. Like everybody, you know, wants to do this right. And so like, you're going to make sure you get it right. And you have, you know, five voices in the room being like, we're going to do this. We're going to do this justice to everybody, but I, I can't, I can't say enough how much of a, a challenge that was in it. And, and I do feel like we, you know, succeeded at the end of the day, you know, Emily just stood up and supports the film and is happy to talk about it. And, and all, and all of them are actually, you know, we had other participants who, who wanted, who wanted to see more of her evolution and how she did come to meet the moment. And so we were, you know, more than happy to put that in there once we heard from them that that was how they really felt. But yeah, complicated, long hours on that. Both films do such a great job showing how people can change and evolve over time. And I think that it's an antidote for for this time where it's very easy to just villainize or, or you know, sh- assume that somebody has malintent when really they're trying to learn and change and be open to it. And I think it's really great that there are examples of parents who have started to reconcile and with their past and the decisions that they made with their children and, and process that as well. I know my, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but my sister is trans and my family is accepting, but sometimes there will be these like 
statements that are made that, you know, they're still dealing with it. And so a film like Everybody I Know is something that sets an example. And I'm a white woman who's working in media, and I need to see examples of women as well who are learning and failing and turning around and admitting their mistakes and learning from that and doing that work. I think it's super, super important. I'd love to move into a conversation about the craft of editing. And let's get, let's really geek out here. So if any of what you're saying goes over my head because I have less experience Mm -hmm. editing, let's still go there. And I'd love to hear about what the software and tools you both used when you started working on these films. Sure. We we edited ours in in Premiere Pro and we used, you know, Frame.io and we used Premiere Pro and we used After Effects and kind of the whole Adobe suite. Yeah. Yeah, we similar. I mean, same things. I don't think we used After Effects. Well, I'm sure our graphics people did. I did it. <laughs> I don't know After yeah, Effects. But yeah, we used Okay, oh good. I feel better. Yeah, we used <laughs> Yeah, we used Premiere and we leaned heavily on Frame.io. I'd never used that before and not to like, you know, add in promotion, but it was like, it was kind of a lifesaver. It worked really well. I'd recommend it to other editors because yeah, just three directors at different places like the, yeah. And I think other programs are starting to do it, but the ability to like keep everything super organized and versions and notes and comments on notes was like pretty, pretty necessary in this. Yeah. On this one. to correct me if I'm wrong, Adobe bought Frame.io, right? And now they're directly integrated. Is that? I believe so. I yeah, know, that's true. Same with us too. We're able to keep um, all of the cuts I, organized. And I mean, Julie wanted all of the selects, all of the dailies, everything, you know, on Frame.io. And she could just put, you can add, you know, time coded notes, you know, through the entire thing and make selects and post cuts there. And yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. Yeah, we could, we were. One thing we used was like basically if a, a director gave a comment, everybody had to either agree or like write their disagreement. And so if there was a note that everybody agreed on, we just executed and went forward. And then if there was disagreement, we flagged that for a phone call. Like we had to streamline that process because they are each like very singular directors with their own styles and obviously their own life experiences and, and stories they wanted to tell. So we, so yeah, that was, that was pretty huge. When you were working, it sounds like mostly remotely and receiving feedback. Can you talk about what were useful notes? Like how were they crafted and probably outside of this project times that you've received unhelpful notes and you're like, well, I don't know what to do with this feedback. Question. That's a hard question. The feed, I mean, most of the feedback I received was just from Julie and she and I were just working hand in hand every single day. And, you know, everyone at Focus and NBC really gave us a lot of space to make the movie. I mean, I think, I don't know if we even showed anything until we had a rough cut of the entire film put wow. together. And then we started making sure everything was 100% right. And Julie was so dedicated to telling the stories of our three characters that that was her main focus, really. It felt like to me that she just wanted to make sure that they were comfortable with the way they were represented in the film. And so a lot of the feedback was, was that, you know, it was like, how do we tell the medical side of things correctly? How do we make it fun? How do we make sure the tone is right? How do we make sure we go out on a high note and it not be such a downer? Because there are some, you know, really upsetting things in the middle of the film. But yeah, it was mostly just, I would edit scenes. I would post them for her. We would talk about them every day. We would talk about music every day. And it was just kind of like a collaborative process from start to finish. And, you know, then once we started posting for everyone else, then it became like, does everyone feel that everyone is represented correctly? And then we showed the characters the film. We showed everyone the film. And so I think we did it. I think everyone's happy. <laughs> so that was yeah, sure. Two two follow up questions for that, Kelly. Were you and Julie ever working in the same space, or were you working all remotely? Ninety nine percent of the time remotely, and then she came over to my apartment a few times, and we worked in my kitchen. 
<laughs> yeah. That's that's kind of the magic of getting into so the into the weeds with a director and an editor. But also from judging behind you, it looks like you have a great kitchen. Yeah. You know, I like to be near the snacks and the coffee all day. Why not? Who doesn't? I have a little door Very that goes smart. outside. Now we can open the door when it's nice. <laughs> yeah, that's everything. And when you guys were working together in the in the kitchen, were you was that finessing sort of moment by moment frame things like getting the feel for the rhythm or was it more of these like big picture conversations or a combination of both? It was definitely both. I mean, we would watch the entire film down together and just talk about what, what works, what doesn't work, what feels slow, what needs to be trimmed, you know, what songs aren't working. We also, you know, as I said earlier that we were working in all of these covers of songs in between like Rivers from New Jersey, River Loves, Bruce Springsteen. We have Born to Run through the, <laughs> through the entire first section of River Scene. And a lot of those songs were edited into the scene so that you could hear lyrics and then the dialogue comes in and then more lyrics. And it's very interwoven into the scenes. And a lot of those songs would change if we couldn't license them. So, you know, it became, how do we also find a song that the lyrics kind of, you know, say something about the scene without being so specific, but also you can have, you can listen to the song for a while and then you can hear them talk. So as the songs changed and we had to find new songs, we had to experiment with music a lot to try to get the right ones in. And yeah, so it was just the whole thing. We would watch the entire film, we would watch individual sections that need more work. And it's just different when you watch it in a room with someone, you know, if when you're watching it alone, I'm sure if she's watching it alone, she feels away, but then you watch it even like with an audience in a theater, if you watch it with someone else and just see, do they get antsy, you know, during sections because they're bored, you know, do they, are they really laughing at the things that you should be laughing at? Just watching it with someone makes a huge difference on how you can, you know, hone it a little bit and make it better. And Jamie, how about you? I know this initial question started with feedback and maybe in the past receiving notes that, were not so helpful. What what is the most helpful way or constructive way for you to receive notes? Yeah. So my experience was a little different. And because everyone was so spread out, I actually kind of set a parameter from early on because it was clear that this could get messy, but that I couldn't talk to any of the directors really or producer without everybody on because I started to become this like, and it's just a natural like evolution this is no person's fault at all but like you kind of become a middleman and then you're like you don't even know what's been communicated to everybody so that was so that made it so we could only we talked once a week and I never watched cuts with them they always watched on frame io remotely and it wasn't that often I was working pretty and I like working in a kind of a silo but I I enjoy kind of different types of creative collaboration, but this is this is what this called for. Everybody was dealing with their own stuff. People had other jobs, health issues, like it was a lot. So we just really tried to savor the time we had. And in terms of notes, I think like one thing that I find helpful in talking about with this film at least was that it, you know, working with multiple directors, and I think that's getting more and more common. And how how do you kind of take notes from everybody. And I even watched our composers have to navigate it too. You know, who's the final say? Who am I listening to here? None of you agree. And I realized early on that they were not going to agree like these were, and they shouldn't, you know, they, they're subjective, you know, it's a subjective thing. And to like force them to agree would feel like it, like is watering it down for somebody. It just didn't really feel like a win. And so what I really tried to do was rather than like force them to come to a consensus, like talking it through was one thing, but I never asked for an answer. I never asked for like a final note or a final takeaway or like, but what, what are we deciding? ever. It was always like, I just took what all of them were saying and tried to just come up with something completely new. Like whether it be the way it's cut or where it cuts out, or like, I tried to really just take in the essence of what they were saying. And I think we do that with, I mean, Kelly can speak to this, but with any note, you know, it's like more about the essence of what they're saying. I find that like, if I, there's no unhelpful note, but if there is something that's unhelpful, it's when people are directors often there's a, a problem with something else that they don't really want to say or they don't recognize and so they they give a note on something else like i've had 
directors who don't like their camera work, but they tell me, and they might even be telling themselves that they don't think that moment's important. And it's like, just say you don't like your camera work because that I can work on. Like I can, you know, I can do a cutaway or I can convince you that it's not that bad or that people aren't even paying attention to it. But just tell me that's the thing that's bothering you. I always just want to know like exactly what you're feeling as much as you can articulate that because that will help me and we can get to something we're all like really happy with and that's best for the film and doing it justice. So honestly, like I think it, it, it elevated my work and, to, and, and I feel so much more confident in my craft after having this experience because I was forced to do that. It was like a trial by fire and I learned so much in that time. And it was such a gift that I had to navigate all these voices and, and make them all feel like they had a film that they're really proud of and really feel like is theirs somehow. So that was very rewarding. And yeah. I can't remember the other part of your question, but yeah, I, yeah, I just, I don't think there's really an unhelpful note so much as just getting to the seed of what, what, what they're needing. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that both of your documentaries happen to, but I also think it's very much of the moment happen to both integrate is a lot of text like print. So Kelly, you are integrating these medical records and, and, and Jamie, you are showing news stories, which is such a two very specific story critical elements of your documentaries. So can you talk about how you approach that? What tools you use to ultimately figure out what those moments would look like? Because it's not like you want to show on screen a block of text and how you made those cinematic. Sure. Yeah, we actually revisit Saifa looking through medical documents two or three times in the film, and you can just sort of see the escalation of how this affected their life over time. So Julie shot Saipa going through the medical records in real time, and then it was just a matter of sort of once we could figure out where those blocks would go in the film, we could sort of figure out how that could be a progression. And I mocked up all the graphics in Premiere as I was editing each scene and we had a graphics company named Big Star who did all of our graphics. We had, you know, we have like a big opening title sequence where it's basically like gender reveal parties and all of our credits come on. And they did a lot of like really cool graphics. And they also did the documents. So we actually had, you know, I timed it very carefully to the story that Syph was telling. So it was really more about finding the story first cutting in really rough versions of all and make I'm not a graphics person. So I, it, it was very much, it was very rough for a while. And once you figured out what needed to be said to tell that story the best, then we would hand off to them and they would give us versions. And if the timing changed, you know, we would have to kind of like re-edit the scene, change all of the graphics. And that happened several times throughout the making of the film. But yeah, it's not a very graphics heavy film. So most of it is, it's either medical documents or, credits, ending credits, beginning credits. But that's how we did it. Yeah, yeah we I'm trying to think it was such a long process. And but the the headlines really, you know, I don't I'm not the biggest fan of a lot of text in film if it's not if it's not necessary. And so but it, it really was in this film. So we had to kind of just embrace that early on. And I had to think a lot early on about how to handle that and how to make it feel part of the, you know, the cinematic world and experience. And we had a great graphics person, Anthony Rhodes, who I'd highly recommend to anybody. He, we were really short on time and, and budget as always goes. So I know probably like he, we didn't even get, you know, to the, the caliber that he is capable of and it's still stunning. So, but you know, a lot of this narrative took place in, in, in Twitter, frankly, and, and in their headlines. So, you know, that was, a fun challenge. And we really conveyed to him early on that we wanted to stay in the world of the participants while also incorporating these tweets. You know, for for instance, I mean, these all of the characters are so, so popular on social media because of their work. And you really see the caliber of their work as they go through Twitter and also them growing as an organization and just, you know, the following that grows. And and because it, you know, they are a digital platform, all of that took place online. So it was like, how do we, you know, so it, 
one thing I used a lot was I'd find, you know, a shot where we could use part of the wall or an empty space in the frame and have that be where the the text for Twitter came up and, and you know, where we didn't have to use the white box, but it could be less like, oh, this is a tweet. We even went through a million rounds of like, how many Twitter sounds, how many like tweet sounds do we actually want to hear? For the Brianna Taylor story, as soon as Aaron published that, you had these tweets going up like, wait, this happened two months ago. Why haven't I heard about this? You know, eight times? What? Like people just losing their minds over like, how have we not heard about this? How has this not been reported two months later? And it was so powerful. And at one point we had each with like a, a tweet sound. And, and we got a lot of feedback that that felt insensitive because we have actually like just, and, and there's just something about that, you know? So <laughs> it was like a lot of push and pull and finding that balance really carefully. And with the headlines, like tiny little detail, things like that made such a difference. Like, and when they start publishing on their own platform, they have this big, the 19th banner at the top with their asterisk. And it's beautiful, but it's so much bigger than the headline. And we wanted it to be clear that they're publishing on their own platform now, but not to make it like, again, we're always toggling that line between like a commercially feeling thing and feeling like, you know, they were involved in the making, which was just not true. So our graphics guy came up with like scrolling it on and it would scroll on so far that you'd only see the bottom of the 19th by the time it was all the way on screen. So you're really, you know, it's on that platform, but you're focused on the headline, the byline and, you know, the subheading. So it was like tiny detailed decisions like that, that I feel like went a long way and and we could have gone on forever. Like you can see how this got expensive and time consuming because we could have treated that like, almost its own portion of production, which, you know, in hindsight, you know, but you don't know at the time. So, yeah. Well, from an audience standpoint, both integrations in both films are so seamless and organic within the storytelling. Now, as we wrap up here, two questions for you. The first is, what is your favorite Mm. editing tool or feature? And the one that every time you use it, you're like get a little jolt of excitement. And what advice do you have for somebody who is interested in pursuing editing documentary film? It's a great question. Let's see. Actually, though, but when you ask what tool, um, I immediately knew the answer. And it's so simple that I'm almost just like embarrassed to say it, but it's extend edit. Yeah. And yeah. Do you use, do you use extend edit, Jamie? Extend edit. What does that do? No, now I'm kind of... It's just, it's the simplest thing ever. You just put your cursor where you want something to land and you hit E and it just moves it there. So if you're trying to edit music and you want it to land on a beat, you just, it just moves it there. If you want, if you're like, it's two frames too much. You just like, you want to trim it, you extend it. You don't ever have to trim anything. You just extend either audio or video or graphics or anything exactly to where your playhead is. And I don't know. I somehow. See, I think I'm a really archaic editor. Yeah. Well, that's how I feel too. I'm a really archaic editor. I do it like, (laughs) I do everything by hand. And I'm like, I know there's a quick key for this, but like, I'm doing it this way. That's my quick key. (laughs) I'm going to use that. That's the one. I just use it for, instead of trimming anything, you just snap everything exactly where you want it using the playhead. And it's just, for some reason, it made me a thousand times faster as soon as I started doing it. It sounds so satisfying. Wow. That's my tool. <laughs> That's yeah. I I I had the opposite reaction. I was like, oh, I do not know what my uh, tool is. I because I do every like you know I like way too much background, but I learned how to edit on like actual film stock on you know those old giant machines. We were required to in film school, so like I think that has just carried through, and I just like I need to get on board with more quick keys as the long and the short. But so you're gonna go to Kelly's kitchen and learn. Yeah, <laughs> totally. You're invited. Okay, get a crash yep. course on the E command. <laughs> yeah, but I yeah, there's something I like about. I mean, I love getting really in the nitty gritty and fine tuning everything, and you know the and and I don't like I'm probably like calling everything by the wrong terms and stuff. But I mean, talk about a simple one. Like I really. I really like doing temp color correction. Mm-hmm. That's like a very odd thing, but I think like it's it's so much better in Premiere than it has than it was in like Final Cut 7 or something and it's so satisfying to like 
make a scene shine before you're sending it out to festivals Mm -hmm. or even directors sometimes because a lot of times they're shooting their own stuff and I just want to make it, you know, I want them to feel good about it. So like just even like, you know, throwing down those blacks a little bit or just doing tiny things, I feel like just gives it a little bit of shine. That's like, that's a terrible answer. I know I'm going to get off this call and come up with something better, (laughs) but Ellie's is a better answer anyway. So. (laughs) And then the last question, what advice do you have for the editor, documentary editors of Tamara? Hmm. Advice. Let's see. Well, I think my advice would just be to learn as much about filmmaking as you do about editing and storytelling in general. Because I think when I first moved to New York, I think I've lived, I've been in New York for 18 years now. I moved here from Oklahoma. And the first thing I worked on was a Nicole Kidman film when I was an intern. And the editor actually didn't use sit at the computer. <laughs> She had someone who would actually operate the computer for her and she would just make decisions. And, and like, I don't, I obviously would never recommend that people do that, (laughs) even though it works for her, because, you know, you want to get in and just get, you know, like obsessed over getting everything just right and like learn how to edit and make all the cuts and learn how to do flashy stuff, but then learn how to not do flashy stuff because you're being too flashy. You know, it's like a constant balance of finding the, the right style and everything for every single project you worked on. But working on that film where she didn't even touch the computer made me just completely see it in a different way. Because I was already very interested in editing before I came here and I did it in school. Mm. But seeing someone do that, I just realized they're just, you know, you're getting hired to make decisions and you have to understand how film works and how to tell a story. And it's not about knowing the program. And like, of course, today it's like way more competitive than you have, you know, a million people vying for the same job and so it's much better if you know how to use the program and you're fast. And especially in television, you have to be very fast. But I would say like taking a screenwriting course, watching how you make... Like I was used to be obsessed with buying DVDs and watching the how-to, how, like the do, making of documentaries. Mm-hmm. Just learn. I mean, I, I watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I just obsessed with learning everything I can about filmmaking because it all applies when you're editing. Like you would be surprised at the stuff that people don't teach you, but that you learn from just watching those little things, how you apply that to editing. It all, it all comes into play at some point. So yeah, you learn, you should just learn way more than editing (laughs) to edit. Yeah. How about you, Jamie? Yeah. I couldn't agree with that advice more. I'm like, that's really solid advice. I'm, I'm also just like a very avid reader. My whole family is, there's always a book in my hands. And I feel like that, that weighs really heavily on my storytelling. So like similar to what Kelly said, it was just like, I'm getting tools from places that are so far beyond like the actual edit software. That is like, that's not important. (laughs) I mean, yeah, you have to know it, but like, it's pretty easy to learn. And beyond that, it's so much more important that you're a storyteller and thinking of yourself as a writer, even as a director, you know, as a real author of, of the story. And then I think the other advice I would give is, you know, a lot of people will think they know the film they want to make, and that should always be kept in mind, of course. But then there's what the film actually is or wants to be. And, you know, I'd always insist on watching everything if you can, and then and and kind of creating a little bit of a bubble of space to let it speak to you, because that can also help the director and the rest of the team know what is standing out just completely objectively like and I think that's so important at the beginning of a project and I tell producers and directors like that space is sacred because that's what it's trying to be that's what's coming out without your agenda or anything and sometimes and I often think like that's the more powerful piece because that's what you have regardless of the intention you went in with and that can always be carried through like but you're going to have a better film at the end of the day and look back and be like wow, that's the, that was the story. And, you know, the other thing is still there, the essence of it or the the origins of it, I should say, but it's like allowed to be. And it's also like Kelly said, like, that's how it becomes a story people haven't seen before, or, you know, an aspect people have never seen before because nothing else could be that thing because you're the only one with that, you know, group of footage. So let that like speak to you and, and inform itself. Thank you both for joining us and for your work on these incredible films. I can't wait for 
the world, the rest of the world to be able to watch. And I think our listeners will love this conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Kelly and Jamie, for bringing us into your process and for talking candidly about your creation of this film and your work with the team to tell two very different yet strangely relevant to each other stories. I am, as mentioned, so excited for these films to come out. And I think the way that you two talk about crafting story through a documentary lens is applicable to not only nonfiction storytelling, but fiction as well, narrative as well. Your ability to collaborate across various members of the team shows in the work itself and to honor the characters' stories because at the end of the day, they're people. They're people who are trusting you with their stories. It's very impressive. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can get more No Film School at nofilmschool.com. We're also going to be doing a couple of follow-up pieces about these particular editors and projects. So keep an eye out for that. You can like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast anywhere you can get your podcasts. And thank you for listening. <laughs>